0: We are, uh, like I said earlier, going to get going on a sort of a survey series through the book of Mark. So if you uh, pull out your Bible Monday to Friday, even Saturday you're allowed to read it, I'm told. Um, Turn to the book of Mark and begin to read through this book. It's a very interesting gospel. Sometimes uh, I think the book of Mark, um, it gets less pressed than the other three. You know what I'm saying? We talk about Matthew, we talk about Luke, we talk about John, but sometimes Mark gets left out. And uh, I have been thinking about doing a series on the book of Mark, and today is the day. Um, all the pastors are going to participate, and so um, they're going to take their turn, and uh, we're going to work our way through this book, and I'm very much looking forward to it. So today we, we're going to start, and we're going to uh, uh, go for the next eight, uh, nine weeks right up to Easter. Uh, it, it's been said that the gospel, it's not a discussion, it's not a debate, but the gospel is really an announcement, and I, I think that that's true. And Mark wastes absolutely no time giving that announcement. Mark's gospel is different, and so today I sort of want to lay the foundation uh, you can turn to Mark chapter 1. That's where we're going to get to. But uh, he, he doesn't, he, his gospel is different. And let me try to explain. He announces the good news of the gospel in verse 1, which is something that is a bit unique. See, when you go back into the gospels, uh, I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but Matthew is writing uh, primarily to Jews. And so when Matthew writes... It's very important to him that he opens up his writings with the genealogy because he's trying to show the Jewish people that he's writing to that this guy Jesus is legit, that he really is the rightful heir to the throne of David. And so it's important that he begins with that genealogy. He's writing to Jews. Luke, on the other hand, was writing mainly to Greeks. And, and Luke's idea and emphasis was that he wanted, to, to, he wanted them to see and, and he wanted to emphasize... The humanity of Jesus. And so he starts with a record of his birth. That's where we get all the great details that we, that we look at at Christmas time from Luke 1 and Luke 2 and on. And that's how Luke uh, starts his. John, of course, is, is again completely different. He starts his gospel with this, uh, th- this theological statement about, about eternity and about Jesus' place in eternity. And of course, his main purpose is was to show that Jesus was God, and so, and that, and that if we believe in him, we will receive eternal life. And that was John's emphasis, and you see that again and again and again and again through John. So where, where does that leave us with Mark? I'm glad you asked, because that's what I want to talk about today. Mark wrote mainly to Romans, and so... His theme as he's writing to the Romans is Jesus Christ, the servant. And you'll see this played out in in big, sweeping themes throughout the book of Mark. Just remember that he's writing to Romans, and his theme from start to finish is Jesus Christ, the servant. The key verse in Mark is actually 1045. You can throw it up for me. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, this is sort of the the, kind of the key linchpin verse uh, that Mark uh, sort of hangs on to. And that's that's a key verse that we'll get to later, but I just wanted to show it to you today. So, Mark's emphasis is on the actions of Jesus Christ, his, his emphasis is on the action of this great servant. That's what he focuses on. He doesn't record many of Jesus' sermons. You don't see that in Mark because uh, Mark is more focused on what Jesus did rather than what Jesus said. And isn't it amazing that, you know what's so beautiful about the Bible is that you have four different individuals writing about the same person, Jesus, but their take and their perspective is completely different and each one gives you this this insight into a different aspect of who Jesus is. And and Mark really contributes to that a lot. There's there's miracles in Mark that don't happen anywhere else in the gospels. That, That Mark focuses so much on the actions of the servant rather than on the words of the servant. That his idea is that the servant is here and he's come to minister to hurting people. He's come to relieve the suffering that people have. He's come to die for the sins of the world. He is a man of action, and he's here to do stuff, not just to talk, but to do stuff. And so Mark's, uh, Mark's theme is action. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is all about Jesus moving around from place to place. He's meeting physical needs. He's healing people. He's, he's, uh, he's casting out demons all over the place. He's meeting needs, physical needs emotional, spiritual needs of all kinds of people all throughout the book. It's, uh, Mark is like action-oriented. So guys, if you're like into action flicks, Mark is probably the, a good book to start with because he doesn't waste a lot of time going, blah, 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 blah. No, let me tell you what he did. And then he goes right into it. And this, this, is, this is Mark's take. And so in this first chapter, as we set the table for our series today, Mark clearly makes three things very clear, three simple things that he wants the Romans and the readers of this gospel to understand. Three big ideas. They are this, that he wants to to identify who Jesus is. He wants to let you know that Jesus has authority, and he wants to let you know that Jesus has compassion. Those are the three big points that, that pop out in this chapter. First is he wants to show the identity of Jesus. He wants, to, he wants to make sure that his readers understand that this is the servant, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who has come to save the world. Um, put up for me Mark 1, to 11. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had turned to God to receive forgiveness uh, for their sins. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair And he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. And as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. This is how he starts. So it's not, well, he begat this and he begat that. No, Mark says, let me tell you, he's the son of God, and this is what he does. Bam, he's right in, right? This is what he does. This is, this is his action-oriented writing. So Mark wants to show you first who Jesus is. He wants to kind of set that as a ground rule that we're dealing with somebody special, somebody unique, somebody who who is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He uses various sources to prove the identity of Jesus. Uh, First, he actually uses himself. So it's pretty likely that Mark uh, saw some of the events that he's writing about he, he, uh, he lived in Jerusalem with his mom, Mary, and uh, it, it's confusing in the Bible because there's way too many Marys. Have you, have you ever got that? Like, Mary who? Mary what? Mary who? Who's that, Mary? Okay, well, here's another one. John's mother was Mary. Not Mary Jesus Mary, but John's mother Mary. And, and uh, he, people call him John Mark, actually. So we call him Mark, okay? But he was known as John Mark, which adds to the confusion. Right, because there's way too many Johns too. But so we are going to call him Mark because we know him as Mark. But Mark uh, lived in Jerusalem with his mother Mary, and their home was actually used as a meeting place for believers. It was a place uh, where people gathered together. His mother was a mature lady in God, and and uh, she was a, a very important cog in that whole in that whole beginning. Um, In fact, you'll see it, I don't want to refer to it because I I got lots to get through, but you'll see it in Acts chapter 19 if you're interested. Also, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter calls Mark my son, and he refers to him uh, in a very special sort of uh, affectionate way, and uh, most people believe that Peter was probably the one who led Mark to salvation, he was the one who introduced him as a young man to Jesus, and so he. He felt uh, a, a deep, deep connection to Mark and treated him like he was his spiritual son. And so uh, more than once, uh, but at least once, he calls him, he calls him my son. So in, in fact, uh, Mark and Peter's relationship was, was really tight, very tight. In fact, many believe that Mark wrote this gospel based on the preaching and the teaching of, of Peter. And so they were very close. Mark announces that God is doing something new, and it's called good news. God's son has come into the world, and he's died for our sins. It's good news because now we can be forgiven. uh, Now we can belong to the family of God, that one day we're going to be together in heaven. So you might as well get used to dealing with each other now. That's the point. (laughs) Well, slightly, yeah, you know. It's an announcement of victory. It's an announcement of victory over sin, over death, over hell. It's a a strong announcement of victory. So he uses himself to identify, first, who Jesus is. Second, he uses the prophets. Uh, He quotes here um, Isaiah. He actually quotes Malachi. There's a reference in there, actually, uh, as well, to uh, Exodus. um, I believe it's chapter 22. But the messenger he talks about and the voice, we all know, I'm just setting the stage, okay? I know some of you already know this, but the messenger and, and the voice that he's talking about obviously refer to John the Baptist. He's the prophet. John the Baptist is like the last Old Testament prophet, right Right before Jesus. He's, he's a wild, crazy dude. He wears really funky clothes. He eats really weird food. He's just a unique, unique character. And and uh, John the Baptist, and, and his very birth, and his very ministry is supernatural right from the start. His parents couldn't conceive, and so God comes in, and you'll see it when, uh, in the other Gospels when uh, they're talking about Jesus, and Mary, and Joseph, and Mary's getting pregnant even though she's a virgin, and, and the angel says, and, you know, uh, and um, Zachariah and Elizabeth are going to have a baby too, and... So here John the Baptist is, and, and so the whole point is this, he, he's used, right, as the voice, as the messenger that was sent to make sure that everything was ready for the arrival of the servant king, all right? So back in those days when the king was coming to town, they would send messengers and uh, people that would shout ahead of him, they would make sure that the roads were clear and, and good, that the people were, were aware that the king was coming and it was, it, was a, it was a big to-do. And in the spiritual sense, John the Baptist was used to be that voice, to be that messenger, to say, the King is coming. He will be coming soon. He is so great and so awesome that I am not worthy to bend down and untie his shoes. I only baptize you with water, but when he arrives, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so He's, he's always deferring to Jesus, always recognizing his place and his role in this story, right? Mark, uh, and, and so Mark refers to that. I, I just wanted to say, too, when Mark refers to the prophets and, again, to John the Baptist, what he's saying here, and don't miss this because I think it's important, what he's saying is, is listen, this whole thing is not random. This is not random, God is sending the messenger ahead because the time had fully come, right? He, the, the Messiah was coming. And so, you know, God had set this time. The whole thing had been orchestrated by God. And here it is. It's not random. The messenger arrives, and then the Messiah arrives right on his heels. This was planned and, and orchestrated by God. So, uh, so it, I think it's important to note that. John the Baptist... Uh, in fact, put up this, Mark 1, 7 to 8. I, I just said it, but he announced someone's coming soon who's greater, so much greater I'm not worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John the Baptist is actually used to identify who Jesus was as well, right here. He identifies him pretty clear, doesn't he? He's saying, hey, I, I, I am who I am but the one who is to come is much greater than I am. He identifies Jesus as the son of God. In fact, he calls him that when they meet. Uh, It it goes on and on and on. But John himself was used to identify who Jesus was. He was always very careful to keep himself low and, and to make sure that Jesus was the one who was lifted high. And there's a lesson in that for us as well. The last witness and the last thing that Mark identif- uh, uses to identify who Jesus was, was actually the father himself. Look at in Mark 1.11, a voice from heaven said, you're my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. So I don't know about you, but uh, the words dearly loved son, it, it's pretty clear how Jesus is, ident- uh, how, how Jesus is being identified here. Um, he's the, it, it, you know what's interesting is those, that phrase, dearly loved son, I did a little bit of digging into that, not too much, but they're not just words of affection. They actually, uh, they also carry a meaning of you are the only one. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you, you are my dearly loved son. You are my only dearly loved son. You are unique, special. You, you are the one, right? And, and God himself identifies who Jesus is. The father announces himself the identity of Jesus. So Mark does all that. Second... He, he goes on to say that Jesus has authority in this chapter. Uh, look at this, and then, and then this is where we'll get going. I got through some of the introductory stuff. But the Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals. The angels took care of him. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their fathers' Zebedee in the boats with the hired men. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught, here it is, with real, say it with me, authority. real authority, right? Quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit began shouting, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One sent from God. Jesus cut him short. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. And at that, the evil spirit screamed threw the man into a convulsion and then came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. Here's the thing. You see, you see how he does, you see how he's done? Jesus is not talking. Jesus is doing, right? This is what this is Mark's point. And so here he comes in and he's saying, not only does he do stuff, not only is he a son of God, we've identified who he is, but I want to tell you, he has authority. Jesus is a servant, understand this, but he is the most unusual servant there is. Uh, You think normally that a servant is someone who is under authority and and someone who takes orders, but God's servant shows up and he gives orders, even to demons, and they listen and obey. This is what he does. And there are three things that happen that show how strong uh, and how powerful his authority is. First his temptation that we just read. Now, Mark doesn't go into all the details that Matthew and Luke do because that's not not important to him. But notice immediately that after his baptism, it's verse 12 and 13 if you're looking in your Bible, but after his baptism, Jesus gets compelled by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. There's no time basking in the glory of that baptism moment. Now, just think about that, okay? If that was you, Okay? That was you. You get baptized, and we're going to have a baptismal service soon in the spring, our last one before we move. And and imagine someone comes up out of the tank, and a dove lands on their voice and says, you are my dearly loved son. It, kind of cool? We may want to sort of bask in that moment. You know what I mean? You go over to Israel, and they, if that happened in Israel, they'd build a temple on that spot. You know, like they we... we You know, remember Peter, oh, this is cool. Can we build tents? No, no, we can't. It's time to move on. You know, like this happens again and again and again and again. Something happens and we want to sort of stop, sort of bask in that moment. And I want you to notice, and Mark notices it too, that he says there's no no time basking in the glory of this baptismal moment. Jesus comes out of the water, the, the Father says these words, and off he goes. The servant has a task. Immediately after his baptism, he is compelled by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. So there's no time to waste. He has a task to do, and he goes right at it. And so we know from all the other accounts that Jesus uses Scripture to defeat Satan. The enemy is not strong enough to defeat the Son of God. Somebody said amen. Amen. So this is what it means. There is, we share in his authority. Yes. Someone said yes. You're a child of God. You share in his authority. So victory in every area of your life can be found when you follow and obey the one who has the authority over everything, right? He is greater than Satan. He has authority over Satan that sin, death, and hell have been defeated through the authority and the the life and death of Jesus Christ. He is truly our Savior. He has saved us from it all. And he has come to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Oh, so, you know, this is what it's saying. Before you knew Jesus... You were more susceptible, highly susceptible, almost 100% susceptible to any sin or whim came your way. But now you have his life, his power, his authority, and now you can say, no, I will not do that. And he will help me not, right? He will find a way. Look what he said, James 4:7. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will say it with me. Right, because you're great, no, because he's great. We share in the blessing of that authority. And so this is a powerful thing that Mark comes across. This man is a servant. He's a servant who is filled with action, who does things and does amazing things. But he is a servant who is not just under the authority of the father, but he is a servant who exercises authority he is amazing and and we share in that so this victory in the wilderness as he's being tempted it's important understand why because it's a sign of things that are are to come right Jesus defeated him in the wilderness just before his ministry on earth began and it's a sign of things to come That means this, folks, he will continually have the power. He will continually have the authority. He will continue to win. He will continue to put Satan down. He will continue to say no. He will continue to win every time they have an encounter. He is the one who has the authority, not the enemy. And this is something Mark wants to get across very strongly. Second, where else does he show? So first he shows authority in his temptation and his dealing with Satan. Second, he shows his authority in his preaching. And and this is really, really, uh, really powerful. They say, someone, I don't know where I got it, but someone used to say that the Pharisees spoke from authorities, but Jesus spoke with authority. And there's a huge difference. That the Pharisees spoke from authorities, but Jesus spoke with authority. Look at Mark 1, 14 and 15. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee. He preached God's good news. The time uh, promised by God has come. At last, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. So this is, this is him beginning. So Mark calls this gospel God's good news. It's, it's because it comes from God and it brings, it brings us back to God. This is God's doing. It's all God's doing. And, and of course, Jesus is the heart of the gospel. I know, I know that we understand this. But be reminded of this today. He is the heart of the gospel. Without his life, without his death, without his resurrection, there is no good news. Do you understand? There is no hope. There is no victory. There is no authority over the enemy. He did it. He is the one. Someone said, amen. amen. Right? He's the heart of the gospel. News, you know, when they say good news, you think about news. News is something that's being reported that has already happened, right? And, and, and this is true here. He's saying, it's now, it's happened. The time of waiting is over. I have arrived. The Messiah is here. God has done something for the whole world has been waiting for, even if they didn't realize it. Good news. Glory to God has arrived. He is here. And Mark is excited about that fact, right? That Jesus spoke with such authority Think about this, just practically, okay? He walks up to two fishermen. Think about this. Hey, guys. Yeah. Yeah, hey, how are you doing? Good to meet you. Yeah, leave your job, come follow me now. Uh, Have you lost your mind? You know what I'm saying? He walks up to them with such authority right the chances are they had probably in fact they probably had met already but but it doesn't negate the fact that they're in the middle of doing their work all right he walks up to to fishermen to four of them actually right he walks up to four fishermen and he challenges them to leave it all behind and to follow me and they do it just like that who has that kind of now, <laughs> I just had this thought, well, if you walked into my office, Pastor, and said, leave that job, I'd do it in a second. You know, some of you have bad jobs. I know, but they, like, it wouldn't take a whole lot to get me out of this job, right? But, but who has that kind of authority? He walks up to them, challenges them to leave, and they do it. Did you know that about half, six, or possibly seven of the disciples were fishermen? Like, at least half. Don't you find that interesting? I've thought about that a little bit. Like, God doesn't do random stuff. There's always a reason. And I was thinking, why is there like half of the disciples are fishermen? There's gotta be, there's probably a sermon in there somewhere, but uh, just, I, I was thinking about, if there's a reason and there's gotta be, what, what is it about fishermen that Jesus wanted? What is it that he wanted, that they had qualities, gifting skills? What was it in them that he wanted to take them and use them as the foundation for the church? Crazy, you know, beat up, blue collared, rough mouthed, fishermen. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly. But did you, did, so I'm thinking like this, okay? Okay. And I'll save it for another day, but I mean, fishermen in those days, they needed courage, they needed teamwork, they needed patience, they needed energy, they needed stamina, they needed tenacity, they needed all these things to make a living or they, were, they, they, they wouldn't succeed, right? They couldn't afford to be quitters, they couldn't afford to sit around and complain, they had to get out and get to work. And it was a great quality for, uh, for people who are now called to go fish for people, right? Here's the better calling, guys. I'm going to use all those skills and all those giftings and all those those qualities that you have. And now forget about catching St. Peter fish that you catch in the Sea of Galilee. Now you're going to go catch people and you're going to use those things and need those things. You think they need courage? They need teamwork? They need patience, energy, tenacity? They need all these things. And so... We have this same calling on us, too. And this is the point from a few weeks ago. Remember, we talked about we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And so, listen, these same qualities of fishermen, we need them, too. And so uh, it's it's important. It's important uh, just to note that so. He says he has authority over Satan, he has authority in his preaching and third, he shows that he has authority even over, demon, uh, over demons and, uh, and those that are demon-possessed. And I'll just read this to show you again. But suddenly a man in the synagogue was possessed by an evil spirit. He began to shout. And it, by the way, just an aside, how many times had this guy been in the synagogue and the, devil, and, the, and the demon did not manifest itself? I wonder. But when the Son of God is in the synagogue, the demon manifests itself immediately, right? He could have been in there for years. So he goes in and he starts to shout, why are you interfering with us? Jesus, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. He also, demons even identified Jesus as the Son of God, the Holy One sent from God. Jesus cut him short, be quiet, come out. The evil spirit screams, he comes out of the man, okay? Amazement grips the audience and they begin to discuss what had happened and, and uh, the new teaching, and authority, and the news quickly spread about Jesus through the whole region of Galilee. He has authority. He's a very unusual servant. He is under authority, not my will, remember, but yours be done, right? I'm going to follow through, right? I'm the servant, but he is an unusual servant who displays incredible amounts of authority, authority over Satan, authority in his preaching and teaching, and authority even over demons. Um, so that's it. Third point, and then we're going to wrap up. Is Paul or uh, Paul Mark wants to show Jesus' compassion, and this is how the the whole uh, it's weaved in through the whole first chapter, but particularly at the end. So. Uh, put up for me verse 29. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, he took her by the hand, and he helped her sit up. And the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening, after sunset, uh, and, which is an interesting thing, but after sunset, Many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch, and Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons, but because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. And before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. And later Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, casting out demons. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said, moved with compassion. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared. The man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning, which did no good, by the way. Don't, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest, let him examine you, take along the offering. There was a whole thing you had to do, an offering to prove you were clean and get uh, and all this stuff. And, uh, uh, and then um, uh, this will be a public testimony that you've been cleansed. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus. He couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. This, is, this, last, this last half, last chunk of Mark chapter 1, it just it just, just pours out. It just, it just like reeks of his compassion. Everything he did was, was lent that way. First, Jesus goes into Peter's house, and he heals his mother-in-law. Okay, time out. Okay, you ready for this? I know this is tough, folks, but Jesus even has compassion on (laughs) mother-in-laws. Just saying. Just saying. Just wanted you to note that. Uh, And all the mother-in-laws in in the crowd said "Amen." amen. There you go. There you go. Even mother-in-laws, yeah. So he pours out compassion, right? He heals Peter's mother-in-law first. And um, and because of the healing, right, this is what happened. Here's the scene. So because of the healing of the demon-possessed man, that happened in the synagogue, right, Uh, just before. After they, they finished at the synagogue, they go to Peter's house. And because of what happened at the synagogue, people, right, followed them all to Peter's house, wanting to be healed, wanting to be set free, wanting to be in his presence. He's, he's a full-blown rock star, and the whole town is surrounding the house. And, and uh, he's had a long day, and, and, uh, and now he stands up, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law so that she can help prepare a meal so that they can eat. So it's a, it's a long day they haven't eaten. It's at the end of the day, and so um, this is what happens. And so because the demon-possessed man, all these people come to his house. And so it says diseases are healed, demons are cast out. And, and what it refers to is it says after sunset. You see, when the people were in the synagogue, it's Sabbath. And so you're not allowed to do too much until Sabbath is over, right? That's why it says after sunset. So when Sabbath was over, at the end of the day, after sunset, they all poured into Peter's house, hundreds of people. So now Jesus is exhausted. He's tired. He's he heals Peter's mother-in-law so she can make them a meal. And then there's hundreds of people standing outside. And so what does he do? It's inconvenient and I'm tired. No. No, he pours out compassion. This is who he is. And this is why Mark wants to make this known, right? This, he, he, he gets up, he goes out, and, and, and diseases are healed by the dozen that demons are cast out by the dozen. Jesus stays up really, really late ministering compassion and power and healing on every person there, on every needy person. And then, this is why it's kind of cool, after a night like that, you'd think you'd want to sleep in. But it says, even before daybreak, right? You you read it, even before daybreak. He was up and he went to an isolated place to pray. Isaiah gives this prophetic description of God's, if you uh, look, I'll put up one verse, but I encourage you, look at Isaiah chapter 50, if you think about this in connection with, with, uh, with Jesus, uh, especially as it ties in with Mark 1, but Isaiah 50, it's, Uh, beginning around verse four, the headline in your Bible will say something like God's obedient servant. And it's very obvious that they're talking about Jesus. And and this is is what it says, Isaiah 54. It says, this is him speaking now. The sovereign Lord has given me his words of wisdom so that I know how to comfort the weary. And morning by morning, he wakens me and he opens my understanding to his will. It's, it's an amazing chapter. Look at that chapter. It goes on to say, they came and pulled my beard out. They came and did horrible things to me, but my God was with me. It's an amazing chapter. This, this is how he did what he did. This is my point. He was up all night ministering compassion to people, and yet early in the morning before the sun came up, he was out in the desert somewhere, in an isolated spot, speaking to his father. Morning by morning, he wakens me, and he opens my understanding to his will. It's this powerful prophetic thing that Isaiah says. Jesus has great authority, He has compassion and power, but it came from his prayer life. If Jesus need it, it, I mean... Does it go without saying, like, if Jesus needed to pray? How much more do we right? how much more do we if we want to be used for for great things for the kingdom, that we have to find that place where where he's awakening us, where he's opening our mind and filling us with his will and his desire and his power and his anointing, his compassion, his mercy. We don't have enough of our own to do anything worthwhile. We need the supernatural touch of God. And this is where it comes from. This is where it's found by spending time in his presence. And so Jesus does this even after a night filled with busyness. And last, it it ends, the chapter ends. So he he shows, he pours out compassion on the crowds and Peter's mother-in-law. And then last, he shows compassion on the man with leprosy. And uh, uh, Mark 1.40, so he he comes, he begs to be healed. If you're willing, you can heal me. Move with compassion. Jesus reaches out and touches him. I'm willing, and he's healed, right? Jesus has compassion on him. Now, in those days, lepers were were supposed to keep their distance from people, right? It was uh, was like a contagious skin disease, and... They were supposed to keep their distance. Nobody was allowed to touch them. Nobody was allowed to go near them. In fact, anytime they even got near anybody within earshot, they had to yell out, unclean, unclean. Nice way to w- walk in the church, in the lobby. Unclean. And we go, yeah, somebody says, I have a cold. You ought to shake your hand. I have a cold morning. Go, Good morning. This was that times a hundred, okay? This is a deadly disease. Lepers were, were they had, they were just uh, absolutely scorned, um, a- absolutely rejected. And even if they had to go somewhere, imagine, imagine your sense of self-worth, honestly. Walking through, a, trying to go through a crowd. Like, I, if I have to get from here to that exit door, you have to get out of my way. And I have to scream, unclean, unclean. And you have to scatter like mice, you know, to get out of my way. It's not a great way to build up self-esteem is what I'm saying to you, you know. This man is on his way to death. He's keeping his distance. He's shouting unclean. But yet there's something in him. Just understand the courage and the faith that it takes for a man with leprosy to try to get through a crowd just to talk to Jesus. Do you understand? He's he's risking it all. He's risking getting beat up. He's risking getting rejected. He's he's putting it all on the line to try to get to him. It's a powerful moment. And then he gets to him, he talks to him, and it seems like he's, he's certain that Jesus can heal him, but he's uncertain, he's sort of unsure if, Jesus is willing, right? And this is why Mark shows the story, because understand in this beginning chapter, in the foundation of who this man is, he is the son of God and he moves with authority and with compassion, three things. And he shows he shows it and identifies it. And he says, if you can heal me. You know, or if you are willing, you can heal me, right? Right. And Jesus says, I am willing, and not, and not only does he say it, but don't, don't miss that he even touched him, right? It's never random with God. Sometimes he spits on the ground and wipes stuff in your eyes. Sometimes he says, go, you're healed. But no, this time he says, I am willing, and he reaches out and he touches him. That's the first loving touch that that man had in who knows how long, right? Right? He shows not only by his words, but by his actions, how much willingness, how much compassion that he has on this poor man. And I want you to know today it points us to a day. There is a day that's coming. When the servant king will be among us. We won't need hospitals. We won't need nursing homes. We won't need handicapped parking spots. We won't need treatment center for addiction. He will straighten everything that is crooked. Somebody said, yes, he will restore everything and everyone that is broken. There is one day he will do it. We just get glimpses of it. But the servant king walks through with such power and authority and compassion. It's one thing to have the ability to do something. It's a whole other thing to have the compassion to extend yourself, to give what people need. He never thought of himself, but always of others. He's an incredible, 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 compassionate person that is pouring out of every act that he does. One day he's going to restore everything that's broken. Satan is going to have no power, and the glory of God is going to fill the world. One great and glorious day. So listen, the spiritual lessons gotta stop now, but but the spiritual lessons of this chapter are very simple, but yet really, really deep in in that same sense. What does it mean for us? This is the so what. So what? What does this matter to you, to me, to anybody here today? Well, here's the lesson for us. He is, let me just say it this way. The spiritual lesson from this chapter is this, that the Son of God came as a servant. Just want to keep it just as simple as this. So this is it. Three spiritual lessons. One, the Son of God came as a servant, and now we are called to serve too. The Son of God came to serve with authority, and he shares that authority with us. So our weaknesses and, uh, and our excuses, oh, I can't do that, God. That temptation is too great for me. Oh, no, the temptation that I have is special. No one else understands this temptation that I have. No, the Bible says you're wrong. Your temptation is common to man. Somebody somewhere has had the same temptation and they've overcome it by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. That means, child of God, that you can do it too. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, here's a spiritual lesson, that he's the servant and that we're called to serve too. Two, that he has authority and and here's the so what. The the thing is for us is that we now share in his authority, that our excuses become pathetic, that we have the almighty God. You are a child of the most high, filled with the Holy Spirit, time for you to rise up and start doing what you need to do, saying what you need to say, and making the difference that he's called you to make. Someone said yes. Yes. This is what he does, and this is the challenge. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's the challenge that's on us today, right? Right? So he's a servant, and we serve too. He has authority, and we share that. And and here's the other thing. um, He serves with compassion. So here's the thing. Sometimes, have you ever noticed in our world that authority and compassion don't always come together? Okay? Somebody who has authority too often, look around our world on all kinds of places. Somebody who has authority... You know, lords it over people. They, they eat filet mignon and let people pick scraps out of the garbage all around their castle, right? This servant comes with compassion. This servant comes with authority, but he comes with compassion. And so what, what's the lesson for us? That we must serve with compassion as well. And understand that when people ask you for help, I know this is deep, okay, but you're going to get this. When people ask you for help, it's rarely convenient. Rarely. Almost never. When you're just walking out the door, oh, Pastor, can you take that phone call? Oh! My dinner's going to be cold in my... Oh! It's rarely convenient. And then my wife yells at me because I'm late. No, she doesn't. I'm just kidding. (laughs) <laughs> I go I had to honey the compassion of Christ drove me back into the office <laughs> but you know, you know what I'm saying it's rarely convenient was it convenient for Jesus after having a long day healing the demon possessed man finally getting to Peter's house being hungry and tired and just want to relax and have a meal and he looks out the door and there's hundreds of people wanting his touch wanting his attention was that convenient for him? Of course it wasn't, but he stood up and he did what he was called to do. He serves with compassion. He serves with this stamina, this energy, this patience, this, this tenacity. It's, it's incredible. And I want you to grasp, this, grasp that today. It's not, compassion is not weak. It's actually incredibly strong. People that think that if you pour out compassion, you're weak, they couldn't be more wrong. It takes more strength and more energy and more life to to pour out compassion on people, even when it's not convenient for you. So what if you're a half an hour late getting home? So what? Use every opportunity. You have been given the ministry of reconciliation. You are called to, to exercise the authority of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus. See, the invitation is given to ordinary people like us to join Jesus in his mission, to be like him, to act like him, to walk like him, to see signs and wonders and touch and all kinds of anointing pouring in and out of our life. Why do we think it's not possible when it is possible? And it's time that we wake up and understand that he is calling us. He is a man of action and Mark is going to prove it to you over the next seven or eight weeks. This is a man who doesn't just talk, but he backs it up with his actions. And we have to, too. Understand this. i got to stop. I See, there's so much here. but it, it's, it's, it's a privilege. Understand this. It's a privilege for us, for me, for you. It's a privilege to follow in his steps. It's a privilege to live for him. It's a privilege to have his anointing and his spirit in us. It's a privilege for us to live actively for him. It's a privilege for us to be used as an instrument, as a vessel, as a tool for purposes that are much higher than ourselves. It is nothing but an honor and a privilege. And it's time that we stopped whining and complaining about it and just got on with the job.